Let me lead us in prayer uh, as we begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us uh, by your Spirit through your Word. Uh, we ask that you do that this morning, uh, that you will make us ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus uh, and encouraged to press on uh, towards that coming. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Christmas is coming. The de decorations are up, uh, not just here in the cathedral, even in the Nasi Lamat shop I went to on Tuesday. Carols are playing in the shopping center. Christians and St. Mary's are inviting their friends to church. Christmas is coming soon. But it's not here yet. We are waiting to celebrate the first coming of the Son of God. But we will wait through four Sundays of Advent. As I mentioned before, Advent, though, is not just a time to wait for Christmas. Advent is a time to wait for the Son of God to come again. And Advent Sunday is the day we especially prepare ourselves for the second coming of Christ. The Apostle Paul, in writing this letter, was writing to Christians in a place called Thessalonica. Uh, and they were eagerly waiting for the coming of Christ. And he gives them two words of encouragement to share with each other and to build each other up. And the first one is from verse 14 to 18 of chapter 4, which ends in verse 18 with the exhortation, Therefore encourage one another with these words. And the second one in chapter 5 verses 1 to 11 ends with, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up as you are doing. And so both halves of our passage today is meant to be an encouragement to us and a means by which we can encourage others. So if you're a believer, don't just listen for yourself, but be thinking, how can I share what I'm hearing this morning to encourage my brothers and sisters? Well, the first encouragement was needed because of a problem that was quite unique to the first century Christians. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 to 10, uh, we see that, that the Thessalonians had turned from serving idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, Jesus Christ, who saves us from the coming wrath. But some of them had died before Christ came. And that might have caused the loved ones who were left behind to have FOMO, right? Fear of missing out on their behalf. Because if their dead brothers and sisters missed out on the second coming, then death would be the greatest tragedy. They would never enter into the joy, the glory they were looking forward to when Christ returned. And there would be no hope. But listen to what Paul says in verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He doesn't say he doesn't want them to grieve. Grief is appropriate. Grief is appropriate for anyone who has lost a loved one and Especially coming up to Christmas, the grief is often felt more acutely. But Christian grief is a grief with hope. There is a certainty we can look forward to. Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Right? The resurrection of Jesus shows that God keeps his promise to raise the dead. He kept his promise to Jesus, he will keep his promise to us. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we will also believe that God will bring or take with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Falling asleep is a euphemism for death, 
which stresses its temporary nature. And so those who have died temporarily won't miss out on what Christ does when he returns. Verse 15 continues, For this we declare to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. I won't have any advantage of being alive at the time. Because before Christians who are alive meet Jesus on his return, he will raise the dead ones. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Right, the Lord spoke at creation, he will speak again. Jesus said in John 5, 25, The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. Jesus will give this cry of command. There's also the voice of the archangel, the leader of the angels, so presumably the, the angels are involved in this cosmic event. And there's a sound of the trumpet of God. You know, many years ago, before my time at Theological College, there was a student there who was always talking about the second coming, and some of his fellow students decided to play a trick on him. They all stayed in this hostel, and in the middle of the night, one night, they played the sound of a trumpet very loud on the loudspeaker. And sure enough, the student came running out thinking the Lord had returned. But actually, in the Old Testament prophecy, the trumpet stands for the announcement that the day of the Lord has arrived. Uh, the day of the Lord was an Old Testament term for the time when God would come in judgment, when his wrath will be poured out on the nations because of their sin. We saw an example of that in our Old Testament reading today. It would also be a day of salvation, a time when God would act to bless and vindicate and restore his people. And so Paul says, the trumpet will sound. The day of the Lord will be announced. And at the end of verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. And only after that, Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The word caught up is a violent word. It literally means snatched up or seized because the separation of, of God's people from the world will be instantaneous. Something that will be done by God, that we don't have to worry about it. Uh, some people also worry about whether they will recognize the Lord when he comes. You know, When you see the dead rise and you're caught up to meet the Lord, you will know the Lord has come. It would be unmistakable. Until then, anyone says that he's the Lord come, he's bluffing. And why the clouds? Well, in the Old Testament, the clouds symbolized God's presence. Now, back on Mount Sinai, when God gave the law to Moses, remember, thick cloud on the mountain. God's presence among the Israelites was hidden in a cloud. And the cloud filled the tabernacle. The cloud led them as they journeyed to the promised land. When Solomon dedicated the temple, the cloud of God's glory filled the, filled the temple. And the prophecy of Daniel, the son of man, the one whose kingdom would last forever, would go on the clouds of heaven to receive the kingdom. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he went into the cloud to show his disciples he had entered in the presence of God to receive that kingdom. When Jesus returns, we will enter the clouds, that is, we will be taken into the very presence of of God himself. And so, verse 17, we will always be with the Lord. Loving him, serving him, worshipping him, enjoying him, together with all our fellow believers, where the dwelling of God is with man, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things is done away. And so, whether we are alive when Christ comes again, or whether we've already died, it actually won't matter. Because either way, our destiny is to be with the Lord. 
Therefore, verse 18, Paul tells us to encourage each other with these words. You know, we're not the first generation of believers. We, we already know that Christians die before Christ comes. Many people have. But these words are still words to encourage each other because when we grieve, we can comfort each other knowing that death is not the end. Resurrection glory will come. When we are tempted to give up, we must remind each other to keep pressing on in hope, to be faithful as we wait for the day when the Lord returns and we are raised with Him. When we are discouraged about life, we should remind each other about the hope we have for eternity. So let us encourage each other with these words. But let us not speculate when all this will happen. Many people do. You can still go to Christian bookshops or websites and people, you'll find people telling you when Christ is going to return. They've done all the calculations. But the problem is that Jesus himself told us that we can't know. And so Paul writes to the Thessalonians in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. He says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. A thief doesn't WhatsApp for an appointment before he comes. Right? It'll be unanticipated. Jesus could come today. Could be another thousand years. It's meant to be unpredictable. So if anyone comes and says to you, oh, I've worked out when Jesus is coming back, or God told me when the second coming will be, don't believe them. They're bluffing or they are faithless. Because faith is trusting God's word. And if God says to you in his word, you can't know, and you say, I've worked it out, then that's not faith. That's pious religious unbelief. In fact, it will happen when everyone thinks everything's fine. Verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Right? Labor pains can come upon you any time, day or night, once you get round about to the time you're due. All right? People who have had children, you know that. You don't know when they'll come, but you know they'll come. You don't know when the Lord will come, but you know he will come. And the general time he's coming, well, any time after his death and resurrection and the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. So that's any time now. But notice in verse 3 that the day of the Lord comes with destruction. Because remember, the day of the Lord is not just a day of salvation for the people, for God's people. It's a day of great judgment and wrath and punishment on his enemies. And so for people in that category, disaster will come unexpectedly. And it will be a great shock for them because they are not ready. And the picture Paul uses to describe them as, uh, is people in the darkness. But on the other hand, there are people for whom the day is a great joy. Because that's the day of their salvation. The day they've been waiting to, for. The wedding they've been waiting to see the Savior whom they love. The day where they will rise in their glorious new bodies. Or the day when their suffering will end and their bodies will be transformed. What a great day it will be for the people who are in the light. If you're one of the people who are in the light, then that day won't be a big surprise. Verse 4, Paul says, You're not in the darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief. Right? Imagine, imagine it's a cloudy morning and you're walking on the street and then suddenly the sun comes up from behind the cloud. 
and it's even brighter. Well, that's great, but it's not a big surprise, is it? Because you're already living in the day. But imagine it's the middle of the night, and you're walking outside, and suddenly the sun comes out and it's as bright as midday. Now that would be a big shot, wouldn't it? That's what's going on here. Uh, uh, can we see the PowerPoint that's coming up? There's a PowerPoint picture that's coming up. Yeah, okay. You see, when Jesus came the first time, he brought in the day. And yet the night continues until he comes again. So the day is, in a sense, now, but it's not yet. We are living in the overlap of the ages. And so for now, day and night run together. It's happening at the same time. Those who are not in Christ, they live in spiritual darkness. They're in the night. Those who believe are in a spiritual light. They're in the day. But when the Lord Jesus returns, that overlap will be over. The day will come in all its fullness and night will vanish. For those who live in the night, well, the day will come as a root shock. But for those who live in the day, it's just like coming home. Because we live in the day anyway. And if we trust in Jesus, the day is where we truly belong. Verse 5. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. We don't live for the here and now. We live for the future. The world is ending. Yeah, that's okay. Because heaven is our home. Treasure is there. Our life, our true life, is hidden with Christ in God. And, and when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. That is our identity. We are citizens of the new creation. That's what we wait for. We belong to the day. And since we belong to the day, and since we live in the day, let us live for the day. Verse 6. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. In other words, we mustn't live like the rest of the world who belong to the night. What do the people of the world do? Well, verse 7, those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Uh, sleep and drunkenness are metaphors for the behavior of the people of the world because that's the thing that people do at night. Uh, Paul doesn't list what the behavior is here that these things are a metaphor for, but he's written in chapter 4 earlier about sexual immorality, so that's probably at least one of those things that he has in mind. In the metaphor, if you are sleeping or you're drunk, then you're not prepared for the thief to come. And likewise, the people whose behavior is the behavior of the night won't be prepared for Jesus when he comes. On the other hand, if we belong to the day, that our behavior will be the behavior of the day. We must try to live now the kind of lives we will live when sin is no more. And verse 8 tells us what it looks like. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober. And the word sober there means to be self-controlled. Right? That's what we're meant to be. But before we do that, there are two things we must do first. Verse 8 says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. Or faith is simply trusting in Jesus. So keep trusting in Jesus, what he's done for you on the cross. Keep looking to him, believing that he has paid the penalty of your sin. Keep realizing what a wonderful savior he, we have who died for you. And as you do that, you will keep on loving him more and more. And as you love him more and more, then you'll love others more. 
faith and love, that is your breastplate, your protection against Satan's attacks who wants to have you in the night. And the other protection, the end of verse 8, is the helmet. And what's the helmet? The hope of salvation. That is, always look forward to the rescue you will experience when Jesus returns. Keep looking forward to that future that God will give you on that day, when the day that you finally, that you actually belong to, finally comes in in its fullness. That future hope will protect you in the present. So, you want spiritual protection? How do you have spiritual protection? You trust in Jesus now, you love him and others, and you look forward to the future hope. That's the spiritual protection that he talks about here. And so, hang on, I just lost my place. Okay, so we talked about that's a spiritual protection. So, and then Paul says uh, in uh, verse 6, in in verse 8 rather, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. So that's a spiritual protection. And having put on that spiritual protection, let us be sober. That is, control yourself. Control the way you think. Control what you look at on your phone. Control the way you talk to other people or about other people. Control the way you act. Control the way you behave. Do not be sexually immoral. Be self-controlled. Live a self-controlled life in light of the faith and love and hope that you have. That is how you prepare for the day. And if you do that, then the day of the Lord's coming will be a day of salvation rather than a day of condemnation for you. Now, if you're a believer, then you will indeed do that. Not because you're better or smarter than other people, but because that's what God chose you for. Look what Paul says in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. If you're a believer, then God in his grace has chosen you. And he has chosen you not to face his eternal punishment, but instead to be rescued through the death of Jesus. That's grace. You said thank you to God for that? And the death of Jesus saves God's chosen ones from his wrath because Jesus already bore God's wrath in our place. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment for our sins. The the judge of all the earth took the judgment and guilt on himself so that we can be right with him. Isn't that amazing? So that when we put our trust in Jesus, we can be confident on the day of the Lord when Jesus returns. Don't trust our own goodness or morality or anything we've done for church or society. No, 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 no. None of those things can pay the debt of sin. Our confidence is fully based in Jesus and what he has done for us. 
You know why Jesus died for us? Well, the Bible gives many reasons why Jesus died for us, but there's a, here's a really beautiful one here in verse 10. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, right, whether we're alive or dead when he returns, doesn't matter, we might live with him. Isn't that wonderful? He died for us that we might live with him. Our parents often like it when their children come back from overseas so the, the family can be together again. Lovers long to be together. And the Lord Jesus loved us so much that he sacrificed himself for us so that we can be together with him. Brothers and sisters, these are very precious and wonderful truths that we should keep reminding each other of. And so Paul tells the Thessalonians, and the Spirit tells us in verse 11, encourage one another, build up one another, just as you are doing. So friends, we've got four weeks to prepare for Christmas, but far more important than preparing for Christmas is preparing for the day of the Lord. How do you do that? Make sure that you're someone who has faith in the Lord Jesus who rules your life. Make sure you're trusting him and his death alone for your salvation, not anything you do. Make sure you love him and love others because he loved you first and died for you. Make sure your hope is firmly fixed on something not in the future of this world, but in the hope of the salvation to come. And with that faith and love and hope intact, seek to be self-controlled and godly in your behavior. Do it because you belong to the coming day. And God chose you. And Jesus died for you. So that whether you die first, or you're alive when he comes, you might be his and with him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words of encouragement from Scripture. We pray that you would encourage our hearts, that we might be ready for Christ's return. And that you would encourage us to use these words to encourage and build up each other. That on the last day, when he shall indeed come again in his glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal and ever be with him who loved us and died for us. We ask this in his name. Amen.